Today we're going to be talking about Genesis 14 all the way through 17, the sign of the covenant, circumcision. So, little, uh, little opener there. Let's, uh, let's pray together and commit our time to God. Lord God, we thank you that you love us. God, thank you that our relationship is based on your faithfulness to us, your promises. God, we've not come here for nothing this morning. We are here because we need you. We need to hear from you. Please, Lord, use your word um, to sharpen us, to speak truth into us. And God, we're brothers in Christ here proclaiming that you are our God. We love you, Lord. Amen. All right, fellas, this uh, first slide here you're very familiar with. Read it through with me, because if you get this, you get all of Genesis. So four events and four people. Read it with me. The first one, fall. Sorry, creation. Who else? Somebody want to come up here and teach? Creation, fall, flood, tower. And then four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. You can walk someone through Genesis just by doing that. On the next slide we've got here, go ahead and take out your charts if you got it and start completing that. We're going to burn through this pretty quick because we've got a lot of ground to cover with four chapters. But start writing this in if you'd like. And if something works better for you than the words I've got, feel free to do that. So chapter 14, to the rescue. This is when Abraham goes after Lot rescues him and brings him back. And on the way back, he meets two individuals. We'll talk about that later. Chapter 15, the Abrahamic covenant. This is when God reconfirms his promise to Abraham and Abraham places his faith in God and God makes that covenant with Abraham. Chapter 15 is huge. We're going to spend a lot of time there. Chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah's solution. Not really a solution. They decide not to wait on God. They take matters into their own hands and it doesn't go well from them. This is where you see Hagar and Ishmael come into the picture. And then finally, chapter 17, circumcision. I was going to call it tip snippers, but uh, Blake had circumcision, and I'm just a guest speaker, so we're going to go with that. But circumcision, this is not the covenant. This is a sign of the covenant. God reconfirms his promises, gives him the promise of Isaac, And then also this is where we finally see Abram and Sarai change their names. And there's a lot to do with that as well. So jumping right into it. Chapter 14. Lot is rescued. That's our first point. So what's going on at this point in time is that they've come up out of Egypt. Their flocks have amassed so much that their herdsmen are at odds with each other. So Lot goes east. Abram goes west and they separate. Lot goes to Sodom, a a city that is notorious for immorality all through the Bible. And as he does, these kings from the northeast who who sweep down because they're, they're trying to collect tribute. Because for a year, these kings down in the promised land of Canaan have not been sending tribute back up to the Lordal king. So they come down and sack five cities and five kings, taking the plunder and the people with them and head back out of town. One of them escapes and goes and tells Abram. So Abraham grabs 318 men, that's significant that that number is there, and pursues them, divides his men at night, comes together, sacks them, routes them back home, and then gets all the people in plunder, comes back. And as he does, he's met by two kings, one from the south and one from the west. Melchizedek, which is Melech, king in Hebrew, 
Zadok, righteousness, the king of righteousness, king of Salem, also priest of the Most High God, and he also is met by the king of Sodom, who fled from the battle, and now he's returned to collect. And what happens is, is that Melchizedek comes out to Abraham, and he says, blessed be you, Abram, by God Most High, creator of the heavens and the earth. So he blesses Abraham. And then he also says, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So two things there. He says, Abram, be blessed by God. And also, don't you forget, God's the one that delivered your enemies into your hands, not you. He, gives, he then gives him bread and wine. That's also significant that a priest would bring that out. And then Abram, in response, gives him 10% of everything. He sees him as a spiritual superior and also kindred, as one who also worships Yahweh and God Most High. The king of Sodom comes alongside him and says, hey, it's, it's, it's so crazy. He commands Abram and says, you keep the plunder, I'll take the people. After Abram does all the work, he commands him. And Abram says, I have raised my hand to God most high that I will not even accept so much as a sandal strap from you, king of Sodom. He's like, me and Melchizedek, we're together. We worship the same God. I know about you. And you'll say, I made Abram rich. I want nothing to do with you. You and I are not going to do business together. So here's what we can see from chapter 14 that I think as we apply this to our own lives. One, I want you to think about who is Lot in your life? Who is someone that has been swept away by evil, that's been captured, that is engrossed in sin, led astray, that's in your life while we're sitting right here today in comfort? And what are you doing to pursue and engage them and bring them back to a place of peace and right standing? Proverbs 24, 11, and 12 says this, Hold back those who are being led to death. Rescue those who are staggering toward the slaughter. If you say, we did not know about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it, and will he not repay you according to your actions? God says, hey, you rescue those who are being led astray to death, staggering towards the slaughter. And if you say, we didn't know about this, but I didn't know how bad it was going to get. I never knew it would go this far. God says, no, you knew. And I'm holding you culpable. You're aware. I'll work through you. And so Abram knew, I am my brother's keeper. That was the point that Cain missed in the murder. And so we all do too. We are our brother's keeper. And whether that's a believer what you see in James 5, 19 and 20, brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, remember that he who saves a sinner from the error of his ways rescues him from death and covers a multitude of sins, and it's for an unbeliever. 2 Timothy 2, uh, verses 25 and 26, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind, able to teach, gentle, hoping that God will grant them repentance from Satan, who has taken them captive to do his will. We are to pursue either believers or unbelievers. Who is the lot in your life? And I want you to write it down right now as God puts it on your mind, who that person is. Write down a name of who the lot is in your life. We didn't come here just to study the Bible. We came to be studied by the Bible. Melchizedek blesses him. You remember I said that... Uh, he says, blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. When I was in Haiti once, this uh, 
Haitian orphan named Wesh said, John, why are you an American and I'm a Haitian? And I was like, oh, silly young boy, let me give you a geography lesson because your parents were born in Port-au-Prince and mine in Springfield, Missouri, and thus. And he looked at me confused. He's like, no, no, you, you, don't, you don't understand. Why are you an, in America and I'm here? And he was asking me a deep theological question. Why do you have all the opportunities you have and, and why do I live in an orphanage and don't have shoes? And it leveled me because for much of my life, I thought, you know what? I work hard. I'm pretty sharp. I can set my mind to things and do good. I can get the girl. I can get the job. I can earn this. I can get that house, this car, whatever. I get the job done. And I was like, I I have nothing to do with any of that. Anything I have is from God because of the giftings and abilities he's given me, and they're not for my kingdom, they're for his. So 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? It's this reminder from Paul saying, hey, everything you have is from God. John 15, 5, abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, Jesus, you can do nothing. Deuteronomy 8 says that God gives us the ability to produce wealth. It's powerful, y'all, thinking about everything that God's done to us. And then Abram, after that, tithes to Melchizedek. He's reminded of that truth. Yeah, everything I have is from God. So here, take it, whatever you want, take this. And then he's not tied to it because when the king of Sodom says, give, you keep the plunder, give me the people, he's like, bro, I don't want any of it. You, you, you have it all. I'm not in this for that. And you and I aren't going to be together. And my verse I've got there is 2 Corinthians 6.14, where Paul commands, do not be yoked with unbelievers. Now that verse, the majority of the time here in these circles, what we hear that used for is marriage. And that is critically important. Because when you make a covenant together with your wife, if you're headed north and she's going west, you're going to have issues all the time if you're following a different moral compass or if you have a different Lord of your life. But in the same way, and I think in this context, we could say, hey, if I'm yoked together with anyone who holds sway over me or can influence my decision-making, then that's an issue. Because think about it this way. If you work for, say, a, a legal office or an ad agency and you've got a certain amount of billable hours, you've got a clock every week, and your boss is like, you know what? Hey, bump those hours up. We need to bill them a certain amount. And you're like, but I didn't, I didn't clock those hours on this client. They're like, just, you know, pad it. Or maybe you get an RFP or an RFQ that you're submitting to get some new business and you don't have that experience. And your boss is like, hey, you need to just... We don't have that, so just write that in for this client, X, Y, or Z, because we need that to submit this proposal. And you're getting continually asked to do things against the word of God to misrepresent the truth, then you are being yoked with an unbeliever, and you're pulling different directions. Consider it. Chapter 15. Here we go. I lost my clicker. Chapter 15, this one's huge in the Bible. One of the most important chapters in the Bible, I would say, because this is where we get the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. Genesis 15, 6 is a verse that's quoted three times in the New Testament. Three times in the New Testament. We're going to get through that here in a little bit. So what happens is, is Abraham's just come back 
He just gave away all of those riches and the people that he got from uh, kicking those four kings out of the land. And God comes to him and says, Abram, I am your great shield and your very great reward. He says, I'm your protector and I'm the one who blesses you. I've got you. And Abram says, well, what can you do for me, God? Because of everything I have, of all the gold and silver and camels and livestock I've amassed from Egypt, I'm going to leave it to my son Eleazar. I've got no one to give this to. So what can you give me? And he's like, come outside. And he has him look up at the stars and shows him the stars. And it says, if you could count these, that is how many your offspring will be. And this is pivotal. Abram believed the Lord and God credits it to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. That portion right there is quoted three times in the scriptures in the New Testament because what happened is, is God presents to him, Abram, you didn't choose me. I called you out of Ur and I told you to leave your father's household and you've disobeyed me. You went down into Egypt. I told you to go alone. You brought along, you brought along Lot. Then you lied in Egypt. This is not because of your righteousness, but I am promising you that I will give you land, seed, offspring, and blessing. I promise you that, Abram. And Abram's response is, I believe you, Lord. I believe what you say is true. I, I, I completely believe what you say. And when God sees that and hears that, he credits it to him as righteousness. Abram is not righteous in himself. He's failed a lot. He's about to have adultery with Hagar in the next, cha- or, yeah, next chapter. So he inherently is not righteous. But when he responds to God's promise and says, I, I receive that, Lord, I, I believe you. I take you at your word. God says, righteousness. I impute to you righteousness. And then he says, but how will I know? How will I know that this land will be mine and my descendants? And God says, get some animals, cut them in half. We're going to make a covenant. And so a deep terror, a deep sleep falls over Abram and God passes through those animals as a flame, just like he does as he leads the Israelites out of Egypt, a pillar of fire. And he makes a covenant with Abram. And he says, look, you're going to live in this land and you'll die at an old age and you'll be gathered to your people, but your descendants will be enslaved for 400 years, four generations. But after that, when the sin of the Amorites has reached its full measure, you'll come back in and take the land. And this is really important. So God, one, is supremely faithful and he is also supremely just with either of those never being compromised. And so he's like, look, I'm not just going to wipe out unnecessarily these Amorites, but until their sin reaches its full measure, then I will bring you in and you'll displace them. But I can't do it right now when you're a small people or even when Jacob only has 70. Rather, I'm going to take you down and through affliction, you won't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to grow you into millions and millions of people so that when you come back to the promised land to displace the Amorites, you'll be able to fill up that entire promised land altogether. And as we look at this chapter personally, here's what I'm reminded of. That when we also say, Lord, with all this affliction, what can you give me? The answer is the same, that we're to go and look up. Colossians 3 says, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated. Set your mind on things above 
When our eyes are fixed on circumstances here, it looks like chaos. It looks like stress and confusion. And so we set our hearts and our minds above. Ephesians 1 says that we have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. We don't grasp it. 1 Peter 1 says, These trials that you're suffering of many kinds, these have come so that the testing of your faith may be proved genuine so that they may give praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, you're, you're filled with inexpressible joy, the joy of your salvation. We look up. Also the covenant. Y'all, every single one of us, this covenant that was made in Abram, was also given to us. The gospel is embedded in this covenant. And we're told that the new covenant, God made a covenant with each one of us, the new covenant in Jesus. In Luke 22, when he says, this is my body broken for you, my blood poured out for you as the sign of the new covenant. God has made a covenant with you and we don't work for it. All we do is say, God, I, I believe you. I take you at your word that my sins are forgiven in Christ and you raised him from the dead and that I'm in right standing with you. I'm justified, not because of me, because I'll fail again, but because of you and what you did in Jesus. He just extends to us a promise and said, I chose you, I've adopted you, I wanna forgive your sins and our part is just to respond in faith and say, I believe you, I believe you. And then also, knowing that God is supremely faithful and supremely just, Romans 12 says, Do not take revenge, says the Lord. It is mine to avenge, so leave room for God's wrath. Chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah's solution. It's not much of a solution. They don't have a child in their timing, and this, uh, so Sarah says, You know what? Take Hagar and uh, have a child by her. This is a common, ancient practice, but it still is sin. So Abram does it. And then there's this strange wordplay, or a funny wordplay. Sarah says, I gave my servant into your arms, and now she's mistreating me because she's pregnant and I'm not. And so Abram says, well, then now I give her into your hands, and you do whatever's best to you. So she's like, I put her into your arms, and then Abram says, well, I give, him, I give her into your hands. You do whatever you think's best. And you see the, the same passivity of, of Adam where it's just hot potato, and he's like, oh, hey, sorry, well, she's in your hands. You do whatever you think's best. And then from that, Ishmael is born, and the Jews suffer consequences from that still to this day, as the prophecy is that he will be at enmity with his brothers, a wild donkey of a man. The question I'd ask for this is, who are you listening to? Just as Abram listened to Sarah. You filter everything you're hearing through God's word. God will never ask you to do something that involves sin. Never. And so you filter everything through God's word. Secondly, problems when pregnant. I, I want to ask you this and ask me this. What chaos have I been a part of that I'm now being passive with and saying, hey, sorry, but you know, you do whatever you think's best. Rather than me stepping into it and saying, you know what? I I created a little bit of a problem here. Let me create order into this chaos just as God designed me to do in Genesis 2. Chapter 17, circumcision. Oops, there we are, circumcision. This is, this is one of my most favorite chapters because after, 
Not for that reason. That's awkward. Uh, <laughs> that you would think that. I'll see you at Regen. Um, after, after Abram screws up and sleeps with Hagar, God doesn't say, hey, you know what? You went down to Egypt. You brought Lot when I said you should have come alone. Now you slept with Hagar. Hey, uh, this isn't working out. Sorry. Severance package. You can keep the camels, but you're fired. Instead, he's like, hey, come here. Come here. Remember. Remember who you are. Okay? I've called you out. I adopted you. I chose you. Remember, he speaks identity into him, and then he reminds him of his promise and says, nations are going to come from you. Kings are going to come from you. King David, King Jesus will come from you. The gospel will reach all nations from you. Don't forget, you don't need to do that stuff. And so he gives him a new identity and says, from now on, your name's Abraham. Father of many, which was ironic because he was father of one, a child from adultery. But it was, a, it was a sign, a remembrance. And then he tells Sarah, and you, your name's not Sarai anymore, it's Sarah, which means princess. Meaning there's going to be a royal line coming from you, Sarah. Judah, David, Jesus. This is what you see in Matthew. Matthew's writing to the Jews, and so he starts with the genealogy of Jesus. I hope you're never bored by this again. And he starts with Abraham and ends with Christ because he's pointing out to the Jews, this was promised back in Genesis 15, 6, that the Savior would come to the whole world. The reminder of the covenant, he gives him circumcision. I'm sure this made him a little nervous if he was thinking about Noah, like, okay, with Noah, it was rain. He was given a rainbow. With me, he's talking about my progeny and my children, which makes me think about that. Like, what's he going to do with my... And he gives him the sign of circumcision. And he goes out that very day. It says on that very day, he goes and circumcises his whole household. Faith is evidenced by obedience. And obedience is radical, immediate, and costly. R-I-C. Obedience is radical, immediate, and costly. And Abram goes out, circumcises his whole household. After P.S., he had just kicked out four kings who, for all he knows, are going to come back and attack him. And now his whole group, family, army is crippled for two weeks or however long it takes to heal a, a circumcision. You fathers could probably tell me that. God also gave us a, a reminder of the covenant he made with us. The book talks about baptism. I'd like to offer you another one. In Luke 22 and Hebrews 11, he says that there is um, a reminder of the covenant, and that is communion. And that Jesus says, the breaking of the bread, the pouring of the wine or the blood, is a reminder to us of Christ's death and resurrection until he comes again. That when we do that, because I don't sit down and eat supper with my enemies, but that as I do that, I realize I'm now seated in fellowship with my king. He made a covenant with me. God made a covenant with me through the broken body and blood of Christ that I am now justified by faith through grace in Christ that I'm right with God because of this covenant. Y'all, communion is a celebration that we are right with God. And I want you to think also 
about something in your life, God will bring it to mind where you need to have faith that is exhibited by obedience. Obedience that is radical, immediate, and costly. Let me tell you, if it's in line with God's word, you move on it, okay? Someone told me recently something was leading them into sin. They had uh, some technology in their bedroom. They're like, well, I'm praying about getting rid of it. I was like, praying about it? You cut your hand off if it leads you into sin. So what? All this talk, so what? The gospel. Genesis 15, 6. I told you three times it's mentioned in the New Testament. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What God did in the gospel of Jesus Christ is he removed our sin and then imputed Christ's righteousness to us. Removed our sin and gave us the righteousness of Christ. The second scripture there. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. When this was penned, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, God speaking to Abram, God had you in mind. He had Riley and Randy and David and Lamp and Alonzo and all of you in mind when he spoke that to Abraham and he said, I'm going to save them through Jesus, through you, Abram. And it comes to fulfillment in us. And not only that, not just the gospel, he doesn't leave us there, but then says, and not just that, but I'm going to make you into the image of Christ. This sin that you struggle with, I'm redeeming that too. And I'm going to make you like my son, Jesus and so there's sanctification that comes. And I want you to read this. Don't, don't check out. Stay with me. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, that's the gospel there, placing our faith in Jesus. Are you now being perfected or sanctified, made perfect by the flesh? Meaning, wait, you started by the Spirit receiving my grace. Are you now think you're going to do this on your own and work this out by good works and accordance to the law? No. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of the faith? This is so huge for me because y'all just seven years ago in December of 2005, I was losing my wife to another man, sleeping on a couch, losing my job. I was suicidal, depressed, total insomnia, and I was a wreck of an alcoholic and drug abuser. I was trashed. I had wrecked my life. But when I got this Bible, I started reading the promises within, and I was clinging to them in faith. I heard God's promises like Abram, and I was like, I take you at your word. I believe. And I know what happens when I live my life on my own. I wreck it. But according to your promises, I believe. So God, if you say I'm a new creation in Christ, I cling to that that I'm not some wasted drunk, that I am a new creation. And you say there's no condemnation for me in Christ? Because I feel condemnation as a divorced man. So I'm clinging to that promise, God. 
And you say that if I abide in you, I'll bear much fruit. I'm going to cling to that. And you say if I live with my mind in accordance to your spirit, then it'll lead to life and peace. I'm holding on to that promise because I need life and peace. And on and on and on. I would read the promises in this word and just tore it apart. And I'd circle them and star them. And I owned them because they were given to me and they're given to us. And God is at work sanctifying you, not by your own work or by the law, but because he is at work in you by his spirit. Got four questions for you all to discuss, all that, and then some. And I just challenge you, you come here to do business. Don't talk about theology. You talk about how this applies to your life. And if you're unequally yoked to someone who's leading you into sin, or if you're listening to someone else instead of God, or if there's a lot in your life that you need to run after. So here's the questions. Chapter 14, who needs rescuing and what is your part? Chapter 15, who needs to know about God's covenant, their promise that all they have to do is receive it by faith? Where do you need to listen and wait on God? And what steps of obedience do you need to take Regardless of the consequences, R-I-C, radical, immediate, and costly. Let's pray. Father God, we're yours, we're your servants. You have changed our identity by calling us bondservants and sons and a kingdom of priests. Lord, thank you for saving us through Christ, the new covenant in his body and blood. Lord, we love you. Today is yours. Your will be done. Amen.